Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Everyone hears about Navy SEALs. Very few men become one. But when Marcus Capone finished college, he enlisted in the Navy, was accepted into the elite Navy SEAL program, and soon wound up on SEAL Team 6. Capone served with valor for 13 years as a war zone breacher and an expert in close quarters combat, advanced explosives, personnel security, and as a driver in heavy combat. All skills he employed on secret missions he still can't reveal. Five combat awards, two bronze stars, and 45 additional military medals later, he turned his 13-year deployment into a career as a television star and founded Vintex Group, a physical and cybersecurity company. Today we go deep inside the heart and mind of this incredibly brave American hero as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Marcus Capone. Where did you grow up? Yep. Uh, I grew up in New York, a small beach town called Long Beach. It's on the South Shore, Nassau County. I went to high school in Flushing, Queens, uh, all boys Catholic school. Um, for a nice Jewish boy like from you. A nice, from a nice Jewish mother. That's right. I, I was one of the first Jewish kids, I think, to go Did to you Devon and Cross at the same time? I wore, a, I wore an Italian horn, a cross, <laughs> and a Jewish star, of course. Very progressive. That was good. We, um, yeah, like we, we, uh, we had a Christmas tree and we had a menorah and... It was a good, uh, it was a, it was a great upbringing. You know, my parents really didn't push any type of religion on me at all. Went to church sometimes with my dad who only went on holidays and I'd go to, you know, synagogue with mom and, you know, grew up, grew up going to bar mitzvahs and, and everything else. I think it's just kind of. And you're like, an only child. And I'm an only child. Just me. Mm-hmm. Which is a, uh, makes you a vaulted and important person in your family. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What'd your dad, what'd your parents do? Did your mom work? You know, my parents were very uh, blue collar, middle class, um, neither graduated from college. Uh, my dad worked for the county. Uh, he was a drawbridge operator. He was a um, FedEx type of employee, you know, prior to that, a smaller, you know, smaller logistics company. And then he got into doing some personal driving. Uh, and then he worked for the bridge, uh, Nassau County Bridge Authority for 20 something years before he retired. Um, and he actually just passed, uh, four months ago mm. had uh, pancreatic cancer. Oh, condolences. So, yeah. yeah. Your dad so. fought that fight for a long he time. He fought it. And you know, when he was originally diagnosed, they gave him two to three months to live and he lasted two years. Wow. And he actually, he had a completely different outlook on life after that. He became a really nice person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and, uh, he became very close to my wife who called him, uh, every single day for two years. And I think that was part of oh, him so beautiful. kind of, because, you know, as a son, you know, we, we forget those things, yeah. but, um, but thank- you were, you were in touch with your mom and dad. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. No, of course. I, I mean, I had to, I was the only, only child and they did, I think they put their life on hold for me. 
um, when I look back, they really did. When you say he uh, he became a nicer guy, just talk a little bit. Obviously, then when you were growing up, yeah. there was some issue. Like, what was yeah, that you like? Know, he was a typical New Yorker that was set in his ways. You know, he had a different outlook on on how he perceived the world. And there was a lot of uh, headbutting with my wife, who grew up with kind of Midwest that Southern style of values and they fought a lot. And then when he got sick, you know, she, she called him every day and just checked on him. How are you doing? She said, I mean, he's read, he read so many books when he got sick and she sent most of them and, but they always had a meaning. It wasn't just random books. Mm-hmm. It was a meaning about, they wound up becoming best friends. Which wow. Was wow. Really neat. That's lovely. That's amazing. Yeah. It was so really amazing. Beautiful. Were you close to him when you were young? Oh my goodness. Yeah. He, he was everything. We did everything together. So we went to movies together. Um, when he worked in Manhattan, I would, you know, I would drive in with him and work. Yeah. Pretty much everything he did, I was with him. And, you know, those are my memories. So yeah, we were, we were extremely Did close. you play sports from the time you were a little boy and, you know, going onward? My goodness. Yes. So that, that is, um, mainly, you know, many of the memories that I have is I started, uh, I think I was on skis at three years old. I was in the pool at four, um, you know, had a baseball or football in my hand at five. And uh, I think I played every sport imaginable. And he was, he was a great ball player. So he was a all-state football player and baseball player in high school. He started as a freshman uh, on a very good high school team. He actually played two years of college football, but after that he went in the military. But his love for sports you know, pushed me into, you know, playing sports. And then his dad was an all-state basketball player. So you've always been a top athlete, like just... I I was always a good athlete, Mm -hmm. I would say. I I would never put myself in the elite category, but I always uh, always played hard. I always had great skill. And I, I go back to my dad on that because he always would pull me out you know, hey, we have to throw the ball. Hey, we have to hit hit the ball. We got to shoot baskets. We got to throw the football. You know, and I used to complain about it, but then I look back and go, wow, I'm glad he did that because you, I was a quarterback my, my whole life and, uh, you know, went to college on a scholarship playing football. And again, it's because he had me out there at six years old. Right. Tossing the uh, pigskin. Right. So, <laughs> Where'd you go to college? I went to Southern Illinois University. What were you interested in at that point? I wanted to go to school for business. <laughs> and this was an odd conversation I had with my dad. I said, I'm here at college. I'm going to major in business. And I remember the phone call I had with him. He goes, well, why? You don't know anything about business. And I thought, well, isn't that the idea that you go to, <laughs> you go to school, right? I mean... And here is my dad. I listened to everything he said. So I, of course, thought, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to take up business because he said, well, why, why would I do that? So I wind up getting into commercial recreation, which was running resorts and cruise lines and that sort of thing, which, you know, again, I look back and wish I had an undergraduate in, in business. <laughs> um, but it was good that I, you know, I did go to USD business school and, and, and you know, uh, graduate with a master's in, in global leadership. But, you know, I needed I needed to do that. But it would have been nice to have a little bit of a business, uh, you know, grounding. Did he encourage you to strive or is that something internally that's in you? Like, No, he didn't. That's me. And, that, and that's the one thing I really push on our kids. I wish they did always tell me to set goals and achieve. Um, and I don't know if that's a, if it was a, you know, a personal thing for them. But when I grew up, it always seemed like anyone who had money was frowned upon. 
in the family. And that's kind of how I grew up. You know, if someone had money, it was for the wrong reason. It was never, oh, that person, you know, worked their ass off. That came from an Irish mother and an Italian father, very tough Italian upbringing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was just odd because to me, if you're not always trying to be the best at what you can be or strive or, you know, make the most amount of money or be at the top of your profession, you know, what are you living for? But again, that's, that's my perception of it. So, you know, I, I wish he had some, some of these conversations when I was younger. Did you have a job after school? Did your parents make you work at the movie theater? Or you know, the- it's funny. You know what? They never made me work. I always worked. I just remember I couldn't wait to get my worker's ID, I think it was called. Or, yeah. So my first job was a garbage collector. We called it a shit picker. So what you did in the morning, you showed up at 6 a.m. with, you know, 30 other kids. You got on a big truck and you drove two miles down the beach. You got out. You had a bag and gloves and you lined up Poker. literally across the... No, wait. No, no. No pokers? We're going to get into the pokers yes. you um that's like graduating the washing <laughs> lettuce you had to do a really good job as a shit picker to graduate to the poker because the poker then you didn't have to bend over that's right, right. You so you walked you walked the beat for a while literally picking up everything that you saw on the beach so you walked in a line two miles along it's a the shocking beach. thing that people leave their crap everywhere isn't everywhere it? and then um, most of the time you picked it up as you got tired there was a technique where if you saw like a piece of paper, the technique was you step on it with your heel and then you push, push down, down with your foot. And then as you walk away, the sand just pushes it over and nobody sees it. So you got really good at that. Who um, taught you that? You know, you learned it from the older, uh-huh. the older fellas that have been there for a while. right? You, you learn. But evidently I did a decent job because I graduated to the poker, as right. just put it. <laughs> and that poker. job was great because you got to go on the boardwalk. You didn't have to walk on the mm. beach. Oh. So you had the poker and you had a basket. And you probably got paid like $2 <laughs> an hour or something like that. Yeah. But the best part about it was you had a bagel and cream cheese wrapped in a soda about an hour into the wow. into the work morning. So talk about going into college because I know you got married young and I'd love to explore that with you. At Southern Illinois, I had uh, my last year, I started getting a little nervous because I was, you know, I was, I was going to graduate and what do you do at 22 years old? All I thought was, gosh, you know, dad, all he did was teach me how to play ball growing up, even though he was extremely bright, he just never applied himself to kind of move on to other things that I think he had the opportunity to do. So the thought of stepping out into the private sector was frightening to put on a shirt and tie. And I remember telling people that I said, is this what we're supposed to do now? All of us, you know, where here we are, we grew up playing ball and now I put on a shirt and tie. And, and go to the office every day. And uh, at that time, I was dating Amber. Yeah, it was two and a half years at the time. And uh, I'd watched a Discovery Channel special on the SEAL teams. And now that we're doing a podcast, and I'm, I'm very transparent, I could really tell you what I saw. So that <laughs> night, Amber and I are watching TV, and G.I. Jane comes on. So as a civilian... All we know is what we, you know, what we see on TV, what we read. So here's a movie that shows, you know, this elite unit, but, but in that movie there was, you know, it was called something else, but it was still based upon SEAL training. And it got me really curious because they, you know, they talk about, oh, this is the, you know, this is the toughest training in the world and these are the best fighters. And that's what got me interested. I know you talked about Amber, but this all is happening at the same time. Were you married yet at that point? No, 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 no. We didn't get married until I graduated. But it was right before I went in the Navy. We had dated, you know, throughout half of my college, you know, when we were 
inseparable. We, we lived together my senior year. I tell you what, we are few and far between that are still together. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the, 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 I the divorce rate in our community is, I think I read 95% it was like 20 years ago. Um, for SEAL That's what I read couples. too. Yes. For and, elite. You know, and I think military couples just in general because mm-hmm. deployments are so long, but we're the only ones that are still together since initial training. So I see this show and it fired me up a little bit, but that didn't turn the switch on. Then I started reading because the internet was just getting more public and there was, you know, not many websites that you could find information. And so I just started reading every book. And I think I read every book that a Vietnam SEAL vet wrote. And every book you read, you just get more and more into it. And then I was hooked. If you talk to my, my friends, colleagues, former teammates, some a lot of the stories are very similar. You either are all in or you're not. So I was all in at that point. Everybody thought I was crazy, especially my parents. In, when, in that, though, when you're reading that, are you seeing both sides? No, it was all about... This is how great... Yeah. Was, well, yeah. I wouldn't say great. It was yeah. just, this is what we did. We had the hardest training in the world. Then we deployed to a really bad place and we were handed the most difficult missions to carry out. And we did that, you know, and sometimes we got in firefights and sometimes we didn't. But, you know, you read these stories and you go, wow, these guys are professional. Super, super high risk. Very high risk. But here's the thing. You don't ever think about that when you're reading a book. But I want to go back to Amber. As this was happening, you know, Amber's first comment, I remember, was like, what's a seal? You know, she had no idea. And and I really didn't have any idea. And I don't think my parents did either. They honestly thought I was nuts. But patriotism, veterans, I just didn't hear that growing up. But now looking back, I actually do remember several of my father's friends, you know, Memorial Day, they were a complete wreck. You know, kids I used to play baseball with, their dads. Um, I just didn't understand it. Like, why are these grown men crying? Like, I had no idea. Yeah, so Amber Amber didn't have an idea. I really didn't. We, I don't think any of us had a clue what was about to happen after 9-11. What does SEAL stand for? Sea, air, land. You know, the idea is that we can attack a target from the sea, come from the air, come across the land. You know, we were originally called frogmen yeah. you know, from World War II and, uh, you know, during the beach landings, you know, in Omaha and Normandy. The frogmen at the time would take explosives and, uh, you know, they would have cigarette hanging out of their mouth and they would they'd swim across the beach. You know. Only in the John Wayne films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, they swam close to shore and underneath the water, they had these big scullies that would prevent the ships coming in to to let the Marines out. And so our job as frogmen back then were to place these explosives on these, uh, you know, underwater obstacles and, and blow them up. And then once they were blown up, you know, there were lanes that, you know, and you've seen it in, in some of the movies, mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan, right? Those yep. uh, amphibious, you know, assault craft would, you know, they would, they would come in, the back would open. Guys fall out. Marines yep. would spill yeah. out, yeah. right? And that's, you know, our job was to clear the way. So we're born from the water. You know, we still have one foot in the water and we were always taught that throughout training. But as, you know, uh, after 9-11, you know, we spent obviously a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, mostly on the land. Mm-hmm. So we had to switch our, our tactics at that time. What year did you go into training? So I graduated Southern Illinois in 2000, got married several weeks later, had <laughs> our first son, Caden, and enlisted in the Navy. I remember sitting, uh, sending a note to my friend saying, I think you need to sit down when I tell you this. Um, <laughs> I'm going in the Navy. We just had our son, Caden, um, getting married. And um, I'm probably not going to speak to you 
for a while. <laughs> and uh, 10 years later, 13, 15 years so later. So when you enroll, wow. you enroll with the prospect of, I want to be a Navy SEAL. So I went to the uh, recruiting station again, you know, when I was a senior at Southern Illinois and, and talked to the Navy recruiter and said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a SEAL. And he said, well, you're graduating from college, right? And I said, well, yes. You know, why? And he said, well, you can be an officer. And I said, well, what's that? And uh, he explained it. And I still had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, well, you know, if you have a graduate, if you have a college degree, you could go in as an officer and, you know, officers are, you know, do this and enlisted guys do this. And I said, okay, well, whatever, you know, as long as I could get to SEAL training, that's all really that I care about. So I went up to St. Louis and did the, you know, all the paperwork and testing and my academic scores were really high. My physical scores weren't the greatest. And I think it's because I was kind of transitioning as a football player. So I was still lifting weights and had that type of workout. And so what happened is I got accepted for every officer program in the Navy, except the SEAL community. (laughs) (laughs) So, and that's the only thing I wanted to do. And they said, well, you could go in as, you know, something else and you could always transfer for over. I said, well, the only thing I want to do is be a SEAL. Like, I don't want to do anything else in the Navy. So he said, well, you could go in and enlisted. And I'm like, okay, well, what's that? You know, like, well, you just enlist in the Navy and you're a, you know, you're an enlisted guy. And so they gave me a SEAL contract and I went in with my, with my college degree as an enlisted, you know, did boot camp. Yeah. I remember the first day at Great Lakes, I think there was, you know, like everybody in the Navy, if you ask them, they're, they're all going to be SEALs. And then everybody in your division, they're all going to be SEALs. Every morning they had what they called dive motivators just to keep you motivated. And so you'd wake up at like 3.30 a.m. before the rest of the boot camp class, you went and you worked out for two hours with everybody who thought they were going to be SEALs. And after, I think it was like the first week, I was the only one left from the whole division. They don't kick anybody out at boot camp. It's just just like a just keeps you motivated before you go through training because in boot camp you're learning just how to be a navy person so you see really quickly how determined people really want to be right. there. I kind of think until you're in it like actually really going in it I don't know if you know what your breaking point is or isn't you hit it on the head nobody knows we, we there's so many guys there that can do Ironman triathlons but they can't make it through three days of training and you're like well, yeah. why well, the psychological it's unbelievable and the other part, yes and, and here's the psychological part so when you wake up in the morning they say what was the hardest part of buzz and I said honestly it was waking up in the morning because you just got your ass handed to you um, the day before, <laughs> literally, and you wake up in the morning and we've all done a workout here and you wake up if you haven't worked out in a while and you go, oh my goodness, I'm so sore. So now think about you being that sore and getting up at whatever, four or 5 a.m. and immediately having to go into the Pacific Ocean that's like 58 degrees, right? Or whatever it oh, is. It takes a very unique person to be able it's to It's right. It, it is, takes a little bit not, of sickness. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And so that's and, the thing. And is single-mindedness. Focus. I, you know, just I, un- yeah. unbelievable. I talk quality. a little bit about it. You know, I've done a little bit of public speaking and it is, it's laser focus, Rebecca, as I talk about that, it's the only way you get through training. Nothing else at that point has to matter, but getting through the day's evolution or really just that one evolution. Motivation. So as much being patriotic and wanting to serve as it was to actually be a SEAL and and strive and be successful in doing that, like what was it for you? I think originally it was just what was out there to the general public was this is Arguably one of the toughest courses in the world, you know, with some of the best people, you know, I'll ever know. So when you go in with that mindset going, wow, I'm going through some of the toughest training in the world, you know, with some of the toughest guys to do some of the toughest missions, that's the top, right? You get through there and you're like, I'm, I am the tip of the spear. I'm playing in the Super Bowl. That's the motivator is that you have an opportunity to actually be the best at something. And so your ideal scene when you were dreaming of being a SEAL was about 
that. Honestly, it was about it, it was going back to reading the, the war stories of Vietnam. All I wanted to do is go to war. Like that was it. And somebody put it out recently and I think it's great. Former colleague, he said there's a difference between a SEAL and a team guy. Now I know, you know, I was a team guy. There's a lot of SEALs. There's a kind of a difference. Team guys want to go to war. SEALs just want to put a trident on and do a few years, get out and tell everybody they were a SEAL, you know, so they could promote their career. Most of the, my close friends are team guys and they all wanted to go overseas and fight. And know? what year was that before 9-11? 2000. So I graduated, entered the Navy in 2000. I wound up, you know, graduating from Buds 2001 in the first class I uh, attempted. So you got through the first time. I got through the first time. That's amazing. Um, it, it is because mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of people get hurt, mm-hmm. you know, and it's nothing on their character at all. It's just st- stress fractures and, and they weigh each, each, uh, each injury. So, you know, if you were a solid performer and you got hurt, they'll probably keep you. If you were somebody that didn't make the standards initially and you got hurt, they might say, you know what, we're not going to waste our time and money. Because at the end of the day, it's about roughly half a million dollars. So going back to that time, I want to go back and pick up the fact yeah, that you go. were newly married, newly married, had a new baby, new baby. finished college, <laughs> and working towards becoming a Navy SEAL and having a very high chance of never coming home. And that was what your life was like at that moment in time. So I'm going to tell you the things that you don't think about. One, you never think about not coming home. I think everybody thinks they're invincible. You don't think about it in the front of your mind. Right. Um, we, I don't think you think about it until you go on your first deployment and you stick your face in front of the first cave or door and you go, wait a minute, this is, <laughs> this is oh, wait a minute, this is real. That's bad. Um, and you're carrying all this gear. Yeah, you're carrying gear and then you, yes. So I don't think you, you think about it at the time. And, you know, I was a few that ha- was married, that had a child, you know, and, and I'll, I mean, I'll say it now, like, you know, I put them second at that time. You know, I had to really think about getting through training because if, I think if I thought about them, then mentally I would have been How long is training? Done. Uh, roughly, it, it changes. It's roughly six months, okay. the initial training, give or take. And then there's a follow-on advanced training. So, you know, in total over a year from the day you step foot to the day you come out that you're technically qualified to deploy. Um, so you're, you're, you're a fucking new guy. As soon as you, you're done, you know, you just went through a, a year of training and, and you think you're a badass and then you go to your first platoon and you're with 17 like real badasses and you're back to square one again, no nothing. Mm, right. So it's, it's pretty humbling. I mean, it takes you a long time to actually get some, you know, clout, respect, uh, seniority, if you want to call it. How that. many people finish? 30% okay. make it. So you lose 70%. I think even in the, in the, in the officer, uh, I think even the officers, it's even more difficult to, to get through training just because there's there's only so many slots available for, for officers to get into training. And so they cut it off. And, you know, just to try to get a slot is very difficult. You know, they'll take 175 enlisted guys in the class. They may take only, I don't know, 20 or 30 officers. So you have a really long line, you know, in front the of you. The 70% that don't make it, mm-hmm. like mostly physical, they just don't cut it? Or is it the emotional stuff like, fuck, I don't know if I can, It's like I'm mentally tough enough. It's that because yeah. it's it initially is the physical, like, okay, I can't do another push-up. Well, duh, you know, if we do 300 push-ups, like, yeah, like none of us could do another push-up, but you stick it out, which means, you know, you stick your ass in the air, you put your knees on the ground, you shake your arms out, you just don't get up and leave. And that's the idea. I mean, if they push you in the push-up position all day long, eight hours, you just do it. 
right? Nobody here could ever, ever be in a perfect push-up position for eight hours. But you do what you can. You <laughs> I'm know. thinking five You lie, cheat, and steal <laughs> on the ground as long as you don't quit. That's the, that's the whole idea. You know, it, at that point, it doesn't matter if you're strong or not. If everyone's already dead tired, now it's a mental game. Yeah, it's the discipline of having that mental toughness. Because yeah, exactly. like, I think when you're over there doing that, you, you can't just freak out there. Even I'm sure you have to compartmentalize it. Oh, Even gosh. when you're in the real life situation, all that discipline of I just got to stick with it must be one of the things that serves you the most. Mission success is number one. The thing, too, is that I've noticed about SEALs, it's just such a hard path that you chose to take. Yeah. And yet we wouldn't be America if people like you didn't choose to take that path. And it's, you know, I mean, you guys go out and solve problems that are terrible problems. And you're a guy that walks into a door and doesn't know what's on the other side of that door. And those people want to kill you as badly as you want to have them be taken care of. So it's a very... It's the opposite of talk. That's what I always think about. Yeah. It's it, the opposite it of talk. It it's- is. I'm very good at executing. Um, I've been learning to be a little bit less impulsive and a little bit more analytical, but I'm still going to keep my, uh, you know, who I am. You know, I, I make decisions pretty rapidly, but they're not as impulsive. It's just that I'm able to process uh, information pretty quickly. I'm going to go back to Rebecca because I understand what you're saying. I just think that now I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I think now we think about it and process it more and go, holy shit, that was a, that was a wild ride. But as we're doing it, it's exciting for us. That's what we want to do. And people go, that's crazy. You're like, you know, people want to cut your head off. You're like, yeah, but you know, really don't think about it at the time. You're only thinking about the person you have to rescue or the, you know, the target you have to watch or, you know, the airplane you have to jump out of. And the camaraderie that the SEALs have with each other is unbelievable. It's amazing. The SEAL community is so close. It is. It's team oriented, right? It's, It's very selfless because... The more you help others, the better your reputation is, you know, and the more you help yourself in the SEAL community, the worse your reputation is. You be, you know, you don't want to be labeled an indiv- individual, right? Like he's not a team player. He's out for his, his own. You want to be a company guy? I just want to read the SEAL code. I was just reading loyalty to country, team and teammate, serve with honor and integrity on and off the battlefield, ready to lead, ready to follow. Never quit. Take responsibility for your actions and the actions of your teammates. Excel as warriors through discipline and innovation. Train for war. Fight to win. Defeat our nation's enemy. Earn your trident every day. Yeah. It's unbelievable. That's a great one. And, you know, that I think that's part of the SEAL ethos. When that came out, um, a lot of us, and I hate to say this, we joked at it a little bit because we never really had an ethos. It was always just kind of preach to us how we were supposed to act and what we were supposed to do. But the guys you were with, we kind of just migrated towards the words that you're reading there off the paper anyway. But so what they did is they, they said, okay, we need to, we need to build a code and, and a mission, right? Like a real business, every business, you know, has a mission, a code ethics, mm-hmm. you know, how are you supposed to act? And so that's what they did there. And so first, you know, we kind of made fun of it, earn your trident every day, but then like, when you read it and think about it, you go, oh, wait a minute. That actually is exactly what we're supposed to do. The earn your trident part every day I think is great because I think you still can do that now. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. just because I have like a gold pin on my chest saying I'm a SEAL doesn't mean I'm a team guy, right? Like I, you know, I still have to wake up every day and, you know, work out, shoot at targets, you know, jump out of airplanes. If I stop doing that, guess what happens? My skills go away. If my skills go away, then I'm not at the top of my game. So I'm not earning my trident every day. So just 
you know, translate that to business. If I'm a private banker, financial advisor, and I'm not learning constantly, you know, what happens to me? I, I don't, I'm, I'm not innovative and, and the world's going to pass me up and, you know, my clients are going to go somewhere Well, you else. know, I mean, when I first met you and you came in and you spoke to Mark and I after you'd been through your rounds of interviews and you repeated the story about the guy, I think he was a Goldman that made some smart ass comment to you about how you could never be successful in this business because you didn't have a Rolodex. And I told you, I saw that you already were successful. And how do you measure, how do you measure success, right? I mean, people, these little, these people with their narrow focused points of view don't really understand what it is to be somebody who's already been successful. I'll never forget that um, interview that you're talking about, a Goldman. <laughs> the first two gentlemen that interviewed me, I thought it was great. It was, it was like you, Rebecca. Um, they understood. And the third guy that came in was a complete asshole. And this is what it was. It wasn't the Rolodex. This is even better. It was because I didn't go to Harvard or Wharton or Penn right. or Stanford. And he actually said that. And he said, look around the room. Everybody here is from Harvard or you know went to Ivy League school or big name school. And he goes, you went to Southern Illinois. Like, how are you going to compete with that? And, you know, my first reaction was if I just punch this guy in the face, <laughs> am I am I still going to get the job? Um, I mentally checked out after that and I said, there's no chance that I'm ever going to work for this company. He basically ruined it for Goldman as a, as a right. whole, uh, as a brand. And I remember going into that inter interview, my dad said, hey, it, it was a pretty interesting day. I had uh, JP Morgan, Goldman, Morgan Stanley all lined up, you know, with offers. And my dad said, you know, if, if you do get offered from all of them, he said, you know, go, go to Goldman Sachs. They have the you know best name in the business right now. Again, this is a few years ago. We know that has changed. Uh, no offense to you <laughs> Goldman folks out there that are still hanging on. Uh, so anyway, I tell that story because I thought it was funny. It was, um, you know, from, from my life and my career, having you say yes to me was one of the high points of my life. I mean that with great sincerity. And my partner, Mark, feels exactly the same way. Having you join us and come aboard was such an honor for me. Well, I felt, you know, immediately at home with, with you and Mark. And um, there was no facade. You guys didn't put on a show. It was just, this is who we are. This is who, you know, and this is who I am. And obviously, you know, you, you, know, you, you graduated from Harvard. And, and um, <laughs> why, why does everybody laugh at that? <laughs> to our listeners that don't know, I, I dropped out of high school. Right. So. But yeah, I yeah. did graduate from the Harvard of School of there Hard Knocks, right? And, 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 and one of the most <laughs> successful um, private bankers in the country. So just goes to you, show you, you that you odds. can fool some of the people some of the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. I, yeah. So, no, God, I'm just, I'm just curious. What was it like when you were over there? So you said, okay, you've done your training, you go over there and now you're deployed and okay, now this is real. What's that about? Like, sure. What did that, that talk about? That so, so you're very, you're first excited to go over there because you just, you know, you just practiced for two years, literally. So think yep. of something that you, you practice and you don't get to actually play. So when you actually get to play, it's a, it's a big deal. My first combat deployment, unfortunately, on that deployment, my task unit, we had a helicopter go down. And, and I think everybody here knows the story of Lone Survivor. And so, you know, we lost a lot of friends. And we kind of turned around and looked at each other and said, holy shit, this is like, this is a real thing. You know, this is not beating my chest and, uh, you know, shooting guns and having fun. And like, no, this is real. Like, you're going to war now. And I think that kind of turned the switch on for a bunch of people. And I remember talking about it with, you know, many teammates that who thought we were invincible. And then, you know, we just lost 22 oh, dudes. And how just did like that, that feel? Like, I mean, that's, those are friends. Those are people that you've like worked yeah, so closely with. Yeah, you know, it with. was a shock. 
it was a shock to the community too, because we had never experienced a loss like that. And so nobody knew how to react or act, I should say, honestly, like psychologists, senior leaders, we didn't know what to do. Um, you know, cause everything up until that point was pretty, I'd say tame. We lost uh, several, uh, seals prior to that. And, and of course it's devastating, but when you lose a large you know, group at one time, everybody kind of looks at each other and, you know, there's a bit of panic, right? And that's what happened. And I think the community thought there wasn't going to be anything difficult. And I remember the story, the first, you know, the first operator went back. Um, I think they had, you know, visits with the psychologist for lined up like 30 minutes or 20 minutes a piece slots. I think the first guy stayed in there for two and a half hours. So, you know, that was like Mm -hmm. the smack in the face going, Hey, this is real, you know, and obviously the community's changed since then. Yeah. But then we deployed right after that. And like I said, it took a different tone at that point. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was game on and, and, and the killing people and like all of that. I mean, that all must be so heavy. And I all, I almost think you would have to compartmentalize, right? The actual emotional part of all of that, losing your sure. buddies, doing what you're doing, the fear that you have to push down. That needs to sit over here while you stay so focused on what you're there to do. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And again, going back to before what I said, Rebecca, I don't know if you think about it that way at the time. I'll tell you from my point of view, I didn't, you know, I didn't look at it that way. I just thought this is, I guess this is how it's supposed to be. And these are the bad guys. And we these, these are the bad, bad guys. guys. They're, you know, they're trying to kill us. You know, we're trying to kill them. You know, you lose a few friends, some bad things happen and, oh, this is just, you know, this is war. Whatever. And look what's happened. I mean, since the time you left, um, you know, being on active duty until today, and there's not a day that goes by now where we don't see some kind of terrorist activity. Yeah. Oh gosh, it's just getting yeah, the hatred. It's, is worse because, it's getting worse. It's definitely getting worse. Um, I think social media is helping. You know, both us obviously combat terrorism. Uh, you know, both on the cyber and, and the physical side, but it's also helping them right spread the word. I wanted to talk to you about your leadership inside. You're you're in the seals. You're going. In into combat and you become a leader inside that context. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. Well, first off again, you know, I was, I was an enlisted guy, which meant, you know, I'm, I'm rank and file and, and, you know, I had to take my orders from, from SEAL officers, but you don't have to be a CEO to be a leader, right? You don't have yeah. to be a, um, even a, a manager to be a leader. A, a leader is just a person that people come to, you know, for answers, um, that they trust that, you know, do the right thing most of the time. And so I, yes, I, I would consider myself that type of leader because I, I was never considered, you know, a, a true leadership role. Like I ran certain departments, but I never had, say, a hundred guys underneath me. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time two years while I was at a, one of my commands, I was a, a leading petty officer. Mm-hmm. But at that point I was, you know, technically uh, supposed to, you know, be, and I, and I hate to use the word in charge. I, I just want to use the word wrangle, mm-hmm. you know, 40 guys that were similar to me. And, you know, when they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, it's really not that difficult to run a crew that is already, you know, just com- the complete studs. And, 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 uh, I mean, the only thing you may have to do is, you know, wake them, wake them up out of bed in the morning after a long night, just to, to get to where they're <laughs> supposed to be going. But other than that, you know, a lot of our guys really can, uh, police themselves. Um, I just think sometimes we have to just point, point our guys in the right direction. But the influence, you know, like the authority 
actually is less interesting to me. And mm-hmm. that's not where, where you were. You right. were in a position of no. actually influencing. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Like, I mean, some of it was specifically, you know, when you were the first phase basic underwater demolition seal trainer. Sure. So that's one aspect yeah. of it. The other is people will wake up for you in the morning because you have influence over them. Absolutely. The good thing about the military is that they really don't get an opportunity to say no. They just have to kind of fall in line. And if they say no, well, they go away. So there has to be some type of, um, you know, they, they, ha- they have to succumb to what you're putting out. There's obviously some instructors that are better than others. Some like to sit up there and beat their chest and yell and tell everyone how, how good they are. I never did that. I didn't feel like I ever needed to. It's not my personality. Um, if I get fired up, there's a really good reason for me. I'm a little bit more wound tight these days. I have my own company, so I need to be, but I still, I always feel most people, most people are good. Um, and I got to figure out, you know, why I'm not going to like them. Not that I still don't trust many people, but that's totally separate. You know, I I wish I could just say, I'm just me. Mm -hmm. You know, I have just, I have a way to reach people. I'm easy to talk to. I get along with a lot of folks. Um, you know, I'm, you I'm also the... have a massive amount of integrity. There's never a hidden agenda. No, I, I tr- and I try to, Rebecca. Again, like uh, you know, I always attempt to do the right thing. I think that's really important. And even if something you know hinders on, is this right or wrong? I try to find a way to figure out: is this what other people? would look at me and frown upon me for, for doing. So again, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I, I do everything perfect because there's a lot of flaws that I have. You could talk to my wife about that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think people look up to me and they call me for, you know, my opinion because I really take a very objective view on just about everything. I don't like to just judge for the sake of judging. To me, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it's wrong either. You, you know, a lot of people, if they don't understand it, it's immediately bad or wrong. Talk about the trust. That was an interesting comment that you made. Well, trust is difficult. I mean, from from my, I mean, my history, my past, even I mean, um, my business partner, we're automatically paranoid about everything. And I think we have to be paranoid because we come from a world of security where you have no idea you know, who to believe, what to believe. And, you know, you're go, you're going to places that are bad places and, and you know, people want to kill you. And so uh, sometimes the way that happens is they become friends with you, you know, and, and then they're not friends. Right. So when you come from that background, you know, how do, how do you just compartmentalize that and go on with the rest of your life? Like mm. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong. So like I said, I like to believe everyone is, is nice, but you start to realize there's a lot of bullshit no, out I'm, there. I share your point of view, as you know, we're lockstep in that. I'm as nice as can be. I hardly trust anybody yeah. until they've stood the test of time. The biggest challenge for you? I mean, we know the obvious, but like, what was the biggest challenge and what was really an like, what was so amazing for you personally in what you did over there? So uh, one thing that's difficult is, is obviously being away from home. You know, you're always thinking about what's going on at home. You know, is everything, is everything okay? Are the kids being raised? correctly you know is my wife doing okay takes a special kind of woman to oh be my married goodness to it 100 percent, it does um you know we used to call our women spartan women because they really are and when you start meeting them and you, i'm sure you've met a few now you well you go, you go man these girls are pretty tough yeah you know and they have to be like who who gets married to a person 
and then says goodbye for, I don't know, six months, a year, or whatever it is. Like, that's not normal. Who, th- who could yeah. potentially not come back. Not come back, right? And we think it's normal. Again, when you live in your bubble, you <laughs> yes. think that bubble is normal and everything outside of it is not. But that is not normal. So that part was difficult. Again, you try not to think of it as much. You're there to for, for a specific job or mission. Stay motivated. Sometimes there's periods of downtime. Maybe the weather's bad. Um, maybe, you know, uh, a helicopter's broken. Maybe there's a certain ceasefire for some reason. Um, so now you're maybe not working for a month and you're over there to work. Like you, you're over there. You want the call, right? Like you want the call to get on an aircraft and go rescue somebody or go, you know, take down the, you know, the, you know, the largest target or the most important target that's out there. Like you want to do that. So when you can't, again, you're just going, okay, why am I doing this? Like I'm here, like I'm here to pull the trigger and I'm, I'm watching movies every evening. I'm working out and I'm eating crappy food. And where are you usually? Are you like hidden away somewhere? Are you on some remote hidden place? For years we deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, that's very common knowledge. But did you stay on the ground? There's no boats there. There's no No, there's no boats. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, we didn't we didn't operate in the water when we were in those places. Right. And that's where I was saying where we had so just So you have barracks like the Navy. Yeah, has absolutely. So, you know, you got to picture our type of person. So we took those things and, and turned them into the, you know, the Rich Carlton, <laughs> right? And we had, you know, we had CBs help build, you know, just beautiful movie rooms, you know, uh, theater seating and the whole <laughs> the whole nine, right? And Is um, that true? Are you making that up? No, I'm not true? making that up at all. <laughs> oh, I feel but so people much people wouldn't know where you were no like it's not, not like so you guys are mm-hmm. kind of like that hidden unit yeah right? I mean, we went well yeah first off we would never you know usually never talk about where you are right but, you know there's you gotta think there's hundreds of bases in, in each country so you're you're working out of yeah. one of those places and you know it's like think of it as you're really a home like you could do everything out of there you have everything you need you have you know you have your internet you eat your food there you have bathrooms you may have showers it just depends really depends but you're working out of there so you would go out maybe do a mission maybe for a couple hours maybe for a couple of days and then you'd come back there but that's where you would like take you know take off your gear and go to bed you could stay in touch with your family because of the ability that we have today which as it goes on easier for you as it goes on and on it's gotten easier but when i was deployed at we call you know critical time uh 2006 2010 i think was one of our most operational times in the history i think just at that point we were we were getting like facetime and skyping but the 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 bandwidth wasn't great so sometimes you can have a good uh you know reception with you know, with your significant other or your kids and other times if, you know, if there was 10 guys trying to Skype their, their wives, you know, you wouldn't, nobody would be able to you know, see each other. So right at that time we started using that, but now I think it's even a lot better. What was it like for your kids? You know, I think for the first couple of years, they didn't understand, but really what hit me the last two deployments, I remember getting out of the car and they were just hysterical crying, both of them. Maggie and Caden, you know, and Amber. I mean, but Amber was always hysterical. And when I saw the kids on the last two deployments, like really break down for me, that was difficult. I said, I I can't do this anymore because I was really doing this for myself. You know, (laughs) obviously you don't get married. Um, say, hey, honey, this is great. I'm going to go deploy to a war zone. You know, you're going to love it. Um, But then. (laughs) And hopefully I'll come home. Right. And hopefully I come home. So when I saw the kids really get upset, I said, okay, I got to figure something else out. And that's when I just kind of started the mental transition of what do I do next? 
Do you see any little bit of um, vulnerability in the in your kids around abandonment's a strong word, but that feeling like, oh, daddy's going and I may never see him again? No, you know, I think absolutely, especially my son, just because he was two, he's two years older than, than Maggie, our daughter, probably hit him a little bit harder. You know, he had some problems sleeping and, you know, things like that um, later as he understood what was going on. So, you know, that absolutely, I'm sure, affected him like it affects all the other kids that are in our community. Um, Maggie, I don't know. She's pretty... Uh, she's 13 now. She's uh, she's 14. She's 14 now. And you've she's been 14 at six foot. For six years. <laughs> right. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, I was out in 13. So right when I started working for you, I, that's when I, I just got out there. So you get out of the being in the Navy SEALs and join the workforce. It's a whole new life. And, right. and you have to build something from nothing. You seem so well adjusted and all of that. Anything that you kind of had issues with for you? That sure. You, to- you know, and you, you know, you talked about uh, PTSD before Rebecca, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but there's a trend right now where there is something going on. What I think it is, is you don't go in the SEAL teams for money. You get out and you just left the very top of your industry. Right. And now, like you said, you start from zero and that makes you feel like zero. And so how do you get you know back up there? So there's, you know, you call it PTSD. It's definitely depression, major depression. From what you saw and what you did, like, I think it's a combination. I, I think it's, it's a physiological. It's a, yeah. it's a combination of both. So yeah. one is absolutely you think about your close friends that were killed. The second is the piece of what's your, what's my self-worth now, right? I was really good at what I did. Yeah. You were defined by that. Yeah. Mm. And you're defined by that. And there's really, I don't want to say there's, there's not a place for it because I believe there is a place for it. You know, I think there's some very bad folks out there, guys with my skill set, sex slave traffickers, just some, some people that are really bad. I believe that there's still an opportunity for us to continue on with the mission in certain other ways. But let's look, if we just look at it broadly, like majority of the people aren't going to do that, right? They're going to go work for Merrill Lynch. They're going to go become a COO, CEO somewhere. And that adjustment can be pretty difficult. My adjustment, when I became an instructor, I was able to go to graduate school at USD San Diego, which was great. So that I had a little bit of transition there, but I think it's a daily struggle. Honestly, I don't think you wake up any day and just go, yeah, this is easy. I think you wake up and go, well, I was at the top of my game for so many years and now I'm just another average Joe. This sucks. When you're over there, do you have access to sleeping pills and oh, smoking gosh, dope? Yes. So there's a lot of that already. Yeah. That well, addiction no, is starting to happen over there's there? There's no dope over there, but a lot of us were taking, you know, we're taking handfuls of Ambien every night to go to sleep because we were on complete vampire hours. So we slept during the day and we operated at night. And so we had to get our bodies adjusted to that, right? Our clocks. So guys get hooked on Ambien and whatever else. But that's a prescribed drug, right? right yeah, that's but, easy to easy to get. So those addictions are starting I think to addictions. handle the sure. stress and, yeah. and the logistics of what of, you're doing. Absolutely. And then the other thing is the guys that are hurt, hey, I have to go out on this op. You know, my knee's killing me. My hips are killing me. I need a Percocet, whatever it is. Is that affecting judgment in your opinion? When you did you see that that was kind of affecting? I, I didn't see the high it. level you were trying to. I, I didn't see it in our community. Our guys are a hundred percent professional. Again, when I need to go to sleep, like I took Ambien, so I go to sleep. But like I didn't take Ambien when I had to go out and think clearly and, and go on a mission. So when it was work time, when it was business, it was business. Um, then when it was play time, it was play time. So that line was in the ground, and you could not cross it. And 
you shouldn't cross it. Again, you're, we're talking about guns with bullets and, you know, demolition that'll blow your face off. You know, you have to, you have to be thinking clearly. And the good thing is you have good teammates that if somebody did start abusing anything or you thought maybe someone was drinking too much or whatever, they'd have a talking to. Is the network as close? Like when you think of firemen, you know, and, and you lose a, you know, you lose somebody mm -hmm. that all the families oh gosh, yes. gather around the family. So forever, this is brotherhood. It, it's brotherhood. Absolutely. We are in the private sector now, so it's a little different because now we're getting a paycheck. But when it comes to, I should say, situations like you're talking about, yeah, everything gets pushed aside and the community comes back mm -hmm. together. You know, now as a as a business person, you know, you got to put your business cap on. Before we leave the subject of being in the armed services, yep. when you get out of the armed services, mm -hmm. do you get access to health insurance for life and the ability to go onto the basis and shop for life then? Only if you, you retire know? after 20 years. You have to retire after 20 years? You have to retire at 20 years or you have to get medically discharged. So those are the only two ways. That so many of you all come out of the armed services and don't have any perks for having been in the armed services because uh, you didn't stay there for Absolutely. Years. But Kinda then sucks, again, huh? you know, most of my friends, so I'd say half are retired. Mm -hmm. So they're getting benefits and, you know, maybe the other half are out and they're, you know, they, they don't have benefits. And I joke about this sometimes with my friends. I did seven combat deployments. Some of my friends did two or three times as many. So some of my friends have been overseas 20 times fighting. And so that person who goes over and, and does 20 combat deployments, and, you know, I'm not, I would, I'd never knock any, everyone has a purpose. So someone though sitting at a desk that does 20 years and gets a full retirement, and then somebody that did 10 years and five deployments and, 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 you know, a million operations and saw half his buddies get killed. That guy doesn't get any who benefits. Needs, who needs, who needs the, the benefits, benefits the most so when he comes home? So that's where you scratch your head a little bit yeah. where you go, hey, this guy who just works in the mailroom is, tw you know, 20 years, he retires as a E9 or even a captain or admiral, full retirement, never saw a bit of combat in their life, served a role that we absolutely needed, but the guy did it bunch of deployments, saw a bunch of his friends get killed, put himself at risk and comes back fine, right? There's no nothing wrong with him. He's physically good, maybe mentally he's he's okay also, but he's he doesn't get anything. Coming up with a scale, some type of um, you know, if you want to call it a matrix that you get certain type of points yeah. would be probably a little bit smarter. I know that your unit was involved in the Osama bin Laden situation. Are you allowed to speak about that? I can speak about it for a few reasons. One, because I, was, I wasn't I was there. So that's, a you know, I have to put that out there for my buddies listening. You know, obviously, I know many or all, all the guys that were on, you know, that raid. And as a SEAL, you, you wish you were there. But yeah, I was part of that unit for a while. And um, yeah, I think it was a, a big high five moment. You know, I think everyone was, you know, for years wondering, you know, wh where the heck is this idiot at? And our community got the call, you know, and those guys that, you know, went on that mission. Funny thing is, if you talk to them, they'll tell you it was uh, just another op. Obviously, it was a little bit higher profile, couldn't screw up, but they handled it like every other couple hundred missions that they've been on before that and planned for. And um, I think there were just, you know, there was more eyes watching and the outcome was a little different. But Again, uh, if, if you talk to the guys, it was um, it was one of the typical missions that they had been on. Over yeah, but over I years. thought that it personally, I believe that that was one of the proudest moments for the SEALs because it was so wide open. I mean, we don't hear every day about all no. the amazing stuff you guys accomplished because it's under the cloak. But to have that 
and to be able to say, yeah, our guys did that. Yeah. The Navy SEALs, who no, were freaking nice. heroes, went in and did that. Okay, now let's talk about what you're doing today. Being a, a SEAL, but then now in the private sector and having a security business like you do, like just talk about how you see fighting terrorism and sure. cyber, like all of... Yeah, no, this is great. You know, As Rebecca and Mark know, and a lot of, a lot of SEALs do the same thing. They want to uh, like turn their back... And they're like, I don't ever want to carry a gun again. I don't ever want to wear body armor. Like, I just want to reinvent myself, right? Like, I want to be a private banker now. So you turn your back on what you just learned and that you're at the top of your industry and became expert in and go learn something new. But we're good at that. We can learn something new. And so I did that. And I found my way back into security only because even when I was working uh for Rebecca, I was always getting phone calls. Can you speak about leadership? Can you speak about the SEAL teams? Can you teach a course on, um, you know, pistol shooting? And I'm going, oh, guys, I'm, I wear a suit and tie now. Like, leave <laughs> me alone. And then it went further. So after I left Rebecca, I got brought into a startup. And I did that for two years. And we, we built we actually built an app. The company's still going. And from there, I jumped back into security because I was asked to run a company. And I, that's when I started learning about the private security industry. And I did that for a couple months. And I, I didn't like the way the company was going. It was more like a nonprofit than a, a real business. And um, I had a good friend that ran a global cyber operations for a telecom company and a very, very high level cyber executive. And, and we lived in the same town and we were very good friends. And we said, hey, we could do this on our own. So we, uh, I stepped off from uh, the company I was running and we, uh, we've been building our company now for the last five months. What Which we is did very is, cool. Tell, tell it's us cool. exactly it, what so what doing, we, So what's happening right now, you have physical security, which I call like guns, guards, and dogs. Okay. We'll always need some sort of that. If you don't know anything, like the cyber world now, you know, a couple years, even two years ago, people were not talking so much about cybersecurity unless you were directly involved in cybersecurity. Now you can't even open the Wall Street Journal without something happening. And then we hear about, you know, the Petya virus and WannaCry and all this stuff that was our weapons, you know, right. that... <laughs> right. that unfortunately were stolen and now they're using it against us and everybody else in the world. So we said, hey, there's a convergence of physical and cybersecurity happening. And the convergence is, you know, I can have my, my whole network completely um, fortified, but guess what? If one of these employees decide to give someone a password or leave their computer unlocked or is maybe disgruntled and decides to to hand off information. Now all of a sudden you just mixed the physical world with the cyber world. So there's a real convergence right now in, in physical and cybersecurity. No companies are integrating them. So that's what we're doing. We're integrating the physical and cyber. Um, we're doing a ton of work right now here in LA. There's hundreds of attacks every day on many of the facilities that, that are now our clients, some of the large movie studios, uh, healthcare institutions. It's unbelievable right. how easy it is to steal it, from people. It, it is. So here's even some of the apps we use. The uh, you know disclaimer on it, if you read some of them, will say, hey, all this information you put on here, um, we're allowed to sell to anyone we want to. So now you just put your first name, your last name, your email, and they are allowed to sell that to anyone. And now some random group has your information. It's just like you said, they take it, somehow they match it up with your social security number that they got somewhere else, and then they go sell it on the dark web, right? And then next thing you know, you have... Um, Identity theft. And the things they're taking, you know, emails from the, the CEO of the company's email will send an email to the CFO and says, yeah. hey, oh, he's on a trip somewhere. I need, you know, $100,000 wired here. 
well, it's from the CEO of the company, of course. So here, I'm the CFO. I'm going to just send it to him. But that was a phishing email and it was really sent, you know, to Nigeria or to Brazil or somewhere else. Anything you just, you know, can tell. What can you do? Yeah. What do we, what can you do? (laughs) Well, first you got to be aware. And again, I, I think this is where the physical and the cyber communities now, because, you know, the cyber world, think of it as, you know, there's a bunch of really smart guys that sit in a room and they, they look at computers all day and they look at networks and they figure out ways that, to attack the network through, you know, internal, external penetration testing and where are the vulnerabilities. But again, they could do that all day on the network, but not see you walk through the front door with a thumb drive that plugs in anywhere, any computer in that network that they find for 15 seconds. He just dropped off a little bit of virus that is going to infect, you know, however many thousands of computers, take it out and walk right back out the front door. So you're looking at the network and here's a guy who just walked through the front door and now he just, he breached your, your, your whole system. So we're trying to take an angle of, we're going to protect the network. We're also going to, we're going to, we're going to assault your network and tell you where your vulnerabilities are. Again, you got to look where I came from in the SEAL teams. We came from a, you know, a community of we like to attack, we like to uh, assault. But once we make a beachhead, we kind of want to move on. We don't want to like hang out and, and you know, hand out lollipops and, and medical supplies. Like we want to go attack the next spot. So our company is, you know, is built of you know, former special operations veterans, uh, you know, Secret Service, uh, FBI. And then on the cyber side, you know, we have some, some great um, operators that that work for us. They're the best in the business. And what they like to do is the same thing. They like to assault the networks, right? So they're finding ways, you know, Merrill Lynch, how can I get in there? I'm going to find a a printer that's open. It may may not be a computer. It may just be, um, you know, a coffee machine that might run run on the wireless network. Um, You may be able to get in there and then jump from the coffee machine that's on the wireless network to the water dispensary that when it gets low, sends a signal to the company that says, hey, I need to drop off water again. But now I'm able to jump to that and then jump on the network. That's how I got there. Yeah. Not through the front yeah. door, but now through the back door. So these are what our guys are doing. They're, we'll go to companies, we'll find ways to infiltrate the network, and then we'll say, you know, we'll present a report, very classified, because these companies, they don't want to, you know, make it known that, you know, their their network was breached. We say, well, we were able to get in here, here, here's some of the content we pulled off. Here's some pictures of your trip to you know, Puerto so Vallarta. You, so you audit it, basically. We audit it, but there are checks and balances that uh-huh. a lot of um, cyber companies just say, hey, you're good. There was one company who just did an audit of a, we'll just say a large corporation. Um, we came in and, and breached the network in four hours and we pulled content off and we showed, you know, the, the CEO and said, you know, we don't think that company was very good because our guys got in here in the first four hours. This cybersecurity opportunity for you, I think is huge. And I can't wait to see you become hugely successful. Marcus Capone, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for your service, for your friendship, for your company. I loved it. You're a wonderful man. Next on Say It Forward, you'll meet Anat Barron, a serial entrepreneur, brand builder, keynote speaker, filmmaker, and overall disruptor. She's an innovative leader who's worked with well-known hotel brands, including Four Seasons, Holiday Inn, and Radisson. She's also worked as a Hollywood producer and executive, a management consultant, and a travel expert. While at the helm of Mike's Hard Lemonade, Barron helped grow the company into a $200 million juggernaut within three years. After leaving the company, Barron wrote, produced, and directed Beer Wars, a feature-length documentary which explores the David and Goliath story of the $100 billion U.S. beer industry. Today, she's the founder and CEO of Stashwall, an early-stage technology company. 
So join us when we rewind to the beginning to find out what makes this chick tick on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 